Section 4 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Rembrandt, Part 2. In visiting the galleries of Europe, I made it my business to secure a photograph of every Madonna and babe of note that I could find. My collection now numbers over 100 copies, with no two alike. The Madonna, of course, is the extreme example, but there are dozens of The Last Supper, Abraham's Sacrifice, The Final Judgment, The Brazen Serpent, Raising of Lazarus, the Annunciation, Rebecca at the Well, and so on. If one painter produced a notable picture, all the other artists in the vicinity felt it their duty to treat the same subject. In fact, their honor was at stake. They just had to, in order to satisfy the clamor of their friends and meet the challenges of detractors. This progressive sketching was kept up, each man improving or trying to improve on the attempts of the former until a Leonardo struck twelve and painted his Last Supper, or a Rubens did his Descent from the Cross. Then competitors grew pale and tried their talent on a lesser theme. One of the most curious examples of the tendency to follow a bellwether is found in the various pictures called the anatomy lesson. When Venice was at its height in the year 1492, a date we can easily remember, an unknown individual drew a picture of a professor of anatomy. On a table in the center is a naked human corpse, while all around are ranged the great doctor's pupils. Dissection had just been introduced into Venice at that time and in a treatise on the subject by Andrea Vesali, I find that became quite the fad. The lecture rooms were open to the public, and places were set apart for women visitors and the nobility, while all around the back were benches for the plain people. On the walls were skeletons, and in cases were arranged saws, scalpels, needles, sponges, and various other implements connected with the cheerful art. The unknown's picture of the scene made a sensation, and straightway other painters tried their hands at it, the unclothed form of the corpse affording a fine opportunity for the classic touch. Paul Veronese tried it, and so did the Bellinis, Titian also. Then a century passed, as centuries do, and the glory of Venice drifted to Amsterdam, commercially and artistically. Amsterdam painters used every design that the Venetians had, and some of their efforts were sorry attempts. In 1620, following Venetian precedent, dissection became a fad in Leiden and Amsterdam. Swanenberch engraved a picture of the Leiden dissecting room, with a brace of gallant doctors showing some fair ladies the beauties of the place. The Dutch were ambitious. The young men, Rembrandt included, 
drew pictures entitled The Lesson in Anatomy. Doctors who were getting on in the world gave orders for portraits, showing themselves as about to begin work on a subject. One physician, with intent to get even with his rival, had the artist picture the rival in the background as a pupil. Then the rival ordered a picture of himself, proud and beautiful, giving a lesson in anatomy, armed and equipped for business, and the cadaver was the other doctor. At the Chicago Fair in 1893, they were shown the most striking anatomy lesson from the brush of a young New York artist. It pictures the professor removing the sheet from the face of the corpse, and we behold the features of a beautiful young woman. Someday I intend to write a book entitled The Evolution and Possibilities of the Anatomy Lesson. Keep your eye on the subject. We are not yet through with it. Swanenberch offered to give Rembrandt a room in his own house, but he preferred the old mill, and a wheat bin was fitted up for a private studio. The fittings of the studio must have cost fully two dollars, according to all accounts. They were a three-legged stool, an easel, a wooden chest, and a straw bed in the corner. Only one window admitted the light, and this was so high up that the occupant was not troubled by visitors looking in. Our best discoveries are the result of accident. This single window, eight feet from the ground, allowed the rays of light to enter in a stream. On cloudy days and early in the morning or in the evenings, Rembrandt noted that when the light fell on the face of the visitor, the rest of the body was wholly lost in the shadow. He placed a curtain over the window with a varying aperture cut in it, and with his mother as model, made numerous experiments in the effects of light and shade. He seems to have been the very first artist who could draw a part of the form, leaving all the rest in absolute blackness, and yet give the impression to the casual onlooker that he sees the figure complete. Plain people with no interest in the technique of art will look upon a Rembrandt and go away and describe things in the picture that are not there. They will declare to you that they saw them. Those obvious things which one fills in at once with an inward eye. For instance, there is a portrait of a soldier by Rembrandt in the Louvre, and above the soldier's head you see a tall cockade. You assume at once that this cockade is in the soldier's hat. But no hat is shown, not the semblance nor the outline of a hat. There is a slight line that might be the rim of a hat, or it might not. But not one person out of a thousand, looking upon the picture, but would go away and describe the hat, and be affronted if you should tell them there is no hat in the picture. Given a cockade, we assume a hat. By the use of shadows, Rembrandt threw the faces into relief. He showed the things he wished to show, and emphasized one thing by leaving all else out. The success of art depends upon what you omit from your canvas. This masterly effect of illusion made the son of the miller stand out in the laden art world, like one of his own etchings. Curiously enough, 
The effect of a new model made Rembrandt lose his cunning. With strangers, he was self-conscious and ill at ease. His mother was his most patient model. His father and sisters took their turn. And then there was another model who stood Rembrandt in good stead. And that was himself. We have all seen children stand before a mirror and make faces. Rembrandt very early contracted this habit, and it evidently clung to him through life. He has painted his own portrait with expressions of hate, fear, pride, mirth, indifference, hope, and wrath shown on his plastic features. There is also an old man with full white beard and white hair that Rembrandt has pictured again and again. This old man poses for Lot, Abraham, Moses, a beggar, a king, and once even figures as the Almighty. Who he was, we do not know, and surely he did not realize the honor done him, or he would have written a proud word of explanation to be carved on his tomb. In the Stuttgart Museum is a picture entitled St. Paul in Prison, signed by Rembrandt, with the date 1627. The money changes in the Berlin Gallery bears the same signature and date. Rembrandt was then 20 years of age, and we see that he was doing good work. We also know that there was a certain market for his wares. When 22 years of age, his marvelous effects of light and shade attracted people who were anxious to learn how to do it. According to report, he had 16 pupils in 1628, each of whom paid him the fixed sum of 100 florins. This was not much, but it gave him an income equal to that of his father and tended to confirm his faith in his own powers. His energy was a surprise to all who had known him, for besides teaching his classes, he painted, sketched, and etched. Most of his etchings were of his own face, not intended as portraits, for they are often purposely disguised. It seemed to be the intent of the artist to run the whole gamut of the passions, portraying them on the human face. Six different etchings done in the year 1628 are to be seen in the British Museum. His most intimate friend at this time was Jan Levens. The bond that united them was a mutual contempt for Lastman of Amsterdam. In fact, they organized a club, the single qualification required of each candidate for admittance being a hatred for Lastman. This club met weekly at a beer hall, and each member had to relate an incident derogatory to the Lastman school. At the close of each story, all solemnly drank eternal perdition to Lastman and his ilk. Finally, Lastman was invited to join, and in reply, he wrote a gracious letter of acceptance. This surely shows that Lastman was pretty good quality, after all. Rembrandt was making money. His pupils spread his praise, and so many new ones came that he took the old quarters of Swan and Birch. In 1631, there came to him a young man who was to build a deathless name for himself, Gerard Du. Then, to complete the circle, came Joris van Vliet, whose reputation as engraver must ever take a first rank. 
fan fleet, engraved many of Rembrandt's pictures, and did it so faithfully and with such loving care that copies today command fabulous prices among the collectors. Indeed, we owe to Van Fleet a debt for preserving many of Rembrandt's pictures, the originals of which have disappeared. With the help of Van Fleet, the Elseviers accomplished their wishes and so made use of the talent of Rembrandt. Rembrandt lived among the poor as a matter of artistic policy, mingling with them on an absolute equality. He considered their attitudes simpler, more natural, and their conduct less artificial than the manners of those in higher walks. About 1629, there came into his hands a set of callow's engravings, and the work produced on his mind a profound impression. Callow's specialty was beggardom. He pictured decrepit beggars, young beggars, handsome girl beggars, and gallant old beggars who wore their fluttering rags with easy grace. The man who could give the phlegmatic Rembrandt a list to starboard must have carried considerable ballast. Straightway on making Callow's acquaintance, he went forth with bags of coppers and made the acquaintance of beggars. He did not have to travel far. The Greeks were at his door. The news spread, and each morning, the truthful Orlis has told us, there were over 400 beggars blocking the street that led to his study, all willing to enlist in the cause of art. For six months, Rembrandt painted little besides the ragged gentry, but he gradually settled down on about ten separate and distinct types of abject picturesqueness. Ten years later, when he pictured the healing Christ, he introduced the laden beggars, and these fixed types that he carried hidden in the cells of his brain, he introduced again and again in various pictures. In this respect, he was like all good illustrators. He had his properties, and by new combinations, made new pictures. Who has not noticed that every painter carries in his kit his own distinct types, sealed, certified to, and copyrighted by popular favor as his own personal property? Can you mistake Kemble's coons, Denslow's dandies, Remington's horses, Gianni's Indians, or Gibson's summer girl? These men may not be Rembrandt's, but when we view the zigzag course art has taken, who dare prophesy that this man's name is written water and that man's carved in the granite of a mountainside? Contemporary judgments usually have been wrong. Did the chief citizens of Leyden in the year 1630 regard Rembrandt's beggars as immortal? Not exactly. In 1631, Rembrandt concluded that his reputation in the art world of Holland was sufficient for him to go to Amsterdam and boldly pit himself against de Kaiser, Hals, Blastman, and the rest. He had put forth his lesson in anatomy, and the critics and connoisseurs who had come from the metropolis to see it were lavish in their praise. Later we find him painting the subject again with another doctor handling the tweezers and scalpel. Rembrandt started for Amsterdam the second time, this time as a teacher, not as a scholar. 
he rented an old warehouse on the canal for a studio. It was nearly as outlandish a place as his former quarters in the mill at Leyden, but it gave him plenty of room, was secluded, and afforded good opportunity for experiments in light and shade. He seemed to have gotten over his nervousness in working with strange models, for new faces now began to appear. One of these is that of a woman, and it would have been well for his art had he never met her. We see her face quite often, and in the Diana bathing, we behold her altogether. Rembrandt shows small trace of the classic instinct, for classic art is founded on poetic imagination. Rembrandt painted what he saw. The Greeks portrayed that which they felt. And when Rembrandt paints a Dutch wench and calls her Diana, he unconsciously illustrates the difference between the naked and the nude. Rembrandt painted this same woman, wearing no clothes to speak of, lolling on a couch, and evidently considering the subject a little risky, thought to give it dignity by a biblical title. Potiphar's Wife One could look at this picture, and the precipitate flight of Joseph is fully understood. We feel like following his example. Rembrandt had simply haunted the dissecting rooms of the university at Leyden a little too long. The study of these viragos scales down our rating of the master. Still, I suppose every artist has to go through this period, the period when he thinks he is called upon to portray the feminine form divine. It is like the mumps and the measles. After a year of groping for he knew not what, with money gone and not much progress made, Rembrandt took a reef in his pride and settled down to paint portraits and to do a little good honest teaching. Scholars came to him and commissions for portraits began to arrive. He renounced the freaks of costume, illumination, and attitude, and painted the custom in plain, simple Dutch dress. He let Diana go and went soberly to work to make his fortune. Holland was prosperous. Her ships sailed every sea and brought rich treasures home. The prosperous can afford to be generous. Philanthropy became the fad. Charity was in the air and hospitals, orphanages, and homes for the aged were established. The rich merchants felt it an honor to serve on the board of managers of these institutions. In each of the guild halls were parlors set apart for deliberative gatherings, and it became the fashion to embellish these rooms with portraits of the managers, trustees, and donors. Rembrandt's portraits were finding their way to the guilds, they attracted much attention, and orders came, orders for more work than the artist could do. He doubled his prices in the hope of discouraging applicants. Studio gossip and society chatter seemed to pall on young Rembrandt. It is said that when a bus driver has a holiday, he always goes and rides with the man who is taking his place. But when Rembrandt had a holiday, he went away from the studio, not towards it. He would walk alone, off across the meadows and along the canals, and once we find him tramping 30 miles to visit cousins who are fishermen on the seacoast. Happy fisher folk. But Rembrandt 
took few play spells. He broke off entirely from his tavern companions and lived the life of an ascetic and recluse, seeing no society except the society that came to his studio. His heart was in his art, and he was intent on working while it was called the day. About this time there came to him Cornelius Silvius, the eminent preacher, to sit for a picture that was to adorn the seaman's orphanage, of which Silvius was director. It took a good many sittings to bring out a Rembrandt portrait. On one of his visits, the clergyman was accompanied by a young woman, his ward, by name Saskia von Uhlenberg. The girl was bright, animated, and intelligent, and as she sat in the corner, the painter sort of divided his attention between her and the clergyman. Then the girl got up walked about a bit, looking at the studio properties, and finally stood behind the young painter, watching him work. This was one of the things Rembrandt could never, never endure. It paralyzed his hand and threw all his ideas into a jumble. It was the law of his studio that no one should watch him paint. He had secrets of technique that had cost him great labor, "'You do not mind my watching you work?' asked the ingenuous girl. "'Oh, not in the least. "'You are quite sure my presence will not make you nervous, then?' Rembrandt said something to the effect that he rather liked to have someone watch him when he worked. It depended, of course, on who it was, and asked the sitter to elevate his chin a little and not look so cross. Next day... Saskia came again to watch the transfer of the good uncle's features to canvas. The young artist was first among the portrait painters of Amsterdam and had a long waiting list on his calendar, but we find he managed to paint a portrait of Saskia about that time. We had the picture now, and we also have four or five other pictures of her that Rembrandt produced that year. He painted her as a queen, as a court lady, and as a flower girl. The features may be disguised a little, but it is the same fine, bright, charming, petite young woman. Before six months had passed, he painted several more portraits of Saskia, and in one of these, she has a sprig of rosemary, the emblem of betrothal held against her heart. And then we find an entry at the registers to the effect that they were married on June 24, 1634. Rembrandt's was a masterly nature, strong, original, and unyielding. But the young woman had no wish that was not his, and her one desire was to make her lover happy. She was not a great woman, but she was good, which is better, and she filled her husband's heart to the brim. Those first few years of their married life read like a fairy tale. He bought her jewels, laces, elegant costumes, and began to fill their charming home with many rare objects of art. All was for Saskia. His life, his fortune, his work, his all. As the years go by, we shall see that it would have been better had he saved his money and built it against the coming of the storm. But even though Saskia protested mildly against his extravagance, the master would have his way. 
His was a tireless nature. He found his rest in change. He usually had some large compositions on hand and turned to this for pastime when portraits failed. Then Seskia was ever-present, and if there was a holiday, he painted her as the Jewish bride, the gypsy queen, or in some other fantastic garb. We have seen that in those early years at Leyden, he painted himself, but now it was only Saskia. She was his other self. All those numerous pictures of himself were drawn before he knew Saskia, or after she had gone. Their paradise continued nine years, and then Saskia died. Rembrandt was not yet forty when desolation settled down upon him. Saskia was the mother of five children. Four of them had died, and the babe she left, Titus by name, was only eight months old when she passed away. For six months, we find that Rembrandt did very little. He was stunned, and his brain and hand refused to cooperate. The first commission he undertook was the portrait of the wife of one of the rich merchants of the city. When the work was done, the picture resembled the dead Saskia so much more than it did the sitter that the patron refused to accept it. The artist saw only Saskia and continued to portray her. But work gave him rest, and he began a series of biblical studies, serious, sober scenes, fitted to his mood. His hand had not lost its cunning, for there is a sureness and individuality shown in his work during the next few years, that stamps him as the master. But his rivals raised a great clamor against his style. They declared that he trampled on all precedent and scorned the laws on which true art is built. However, he had friends, and they, to help him, went forth and secured the commission, the famous Night Watch, now in the Rieks Museum at Amsterdam. The production of this fine picture resulted in a comedy of errors. It shaded off into a tragedy for poor Rembrandt. The original commission for this picture came from 37 prominent citizens who were to share the expense equally among them. The order was for the portraits of the eminent men to appear on one canvas, the subjects to be grouped in an artistic way according to the artist's own conceit. Rembrandt studied hard over the matter, as he was not content to execute a picture of a mass of men doing nothing but pose. It took a year to complete the picture. The canvas shows a band of armed men marching forth to the defense of the city in response to a sudden night alarm. Two brave men lead the throng and the others shade off into mere Rembrandt shadows, and you only know there are men there by the nodding plumes, banners, and spearheads that glisten in the pale light of the torches. When the picture was unveiled, the rich donors looked for themselves on the canvas, and some looked in vain. Only two men were satisfied, and these were the two who marched in the vanguard. Where am I? demanded a wealthy shipowner of Rembrandt, as the canvas was scanned in a vain search for his proud features. You see the palace there in the picture, do you not? asked the painter petulantly. Yes, I see that was the answer. Well, you are behind that palace. 
The company turned on Rembrandt and forbade the hanging of any more of his pictures in the municipal buildings. Rembrandt shrugged his shoulders, but as the year passed and orders dropped away, he found how unwise a thing it is to affront the public. Men who owed him refused to pay, and those whom he owed demanded their money. He continued doggedly on his course. Some years before, he had bought a large house and borrowed money to pay for it, and had further given his note at hand to various merchants and dealers in curios. As long as he was making money, no one cared for more than the interest, but now the principal was demanded. So sure had Rembrandt been of his powers that he did not conceive that his income could drop from 30,000 florins a year to scarcely a fifth of that. Then his relations with Hedrick Stoffels had displeased society. She was his housekeeper, servant, and model, a woman without education or refinement, we are told. But she was loyal, more than loyal to Rembrandt. She lived but to serve him and sought to protect his interests in every way. When summoned before the elders of the church to answer for her conduct, she appeared, pleaded guilty, and shocked the company by declaring, I would rather go to hell with Rembrandt Harmons than play a harp in heaven, surrounded by such as you. The remark was brooded throughout the city and did Rembrandt no good. His rivals combined to shut his work out of all exhibitions, and several made it their business to buy up the overdue claims against him. Then officers came and took possession of his house, and his splendid collections of jewels, laces, furniture, curios, and pictures were sold at auction. The fine dresses that once belonged to Saskia were seized. They even took her wedding gown and wanton women bid against the nobility for the possession of these things. Rembrandt was stripped of his sketches, and these were sold in bundles, the very sweat of his brain for years. Then he was turned into the streets. But Hendrik Stoffel still clung to him, his only friend. Rembrandt's proud heart was broken. He found companionship at the taverns, and to get a needful loaf of bread for Hedrick and his boy, made sketches and hawked them from house to house. Fashions change, and art is often only a whim. People wondered why they had ever bought those dark, shadowy things made by that laden artist. What's his name? One man utilized the frames which contained Rembrandt's by putting other canvases right over in front of them. Rembrandt's son, Titus, tried his skill at art, but with indifferent success. He died while yet a youth. Then Hedrick passed away, and Rembrandt was alone, a battered derelict on the sea of life. He lost his identity under an assumed name and sketched with chalk on tavern walls and pavement for the amusement of the crowd. He died in 1669, and the expense of his burial was paid by the hands of charity. The cost of the funeral was seven dollars and fifty cents. In eighteen hundred ninety seven they were sold in London a small portrait by Rembrandt for a sum equal to a trifle more than thirty one thousand dollars. But even this does not represent the true value of one of his pictures, 
but connoisseurs regard a painting by Rembrandt as priceless. There is a law in Holland forbidding anyone on serious penalty to remove a Rembrandt from the country. If any one of the men who combined to work his ruin is mentioned in history, it is only to say he lived in the age of Rembrandt. End of section four.